condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello and welcome back to Behind the Headlines. Today is Sunday, December 7th in a new year, 2018. And after a brief hiatus, it looks like the trouble never ends. And uh, we're here today to cover the stories of the day. Uh, We'll be leading with uh, Iran and getting into some other subjects. But uh, first, let me introduce myself, Ilan Martin. And with me in the studio today is Harrison Keeley. Hello. And from across the pond, we have Mr. Joe Quinn. Hello there. So, how's everybody feeling today? Are we ready to jump in and and get into the news and ready to go? Ready to go, Joe? Ready to rock rock and roll in a new year. Thankfully, we're all very stable geniuses. Very to be able to handle the new year. Yep. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and Stable and genius. And that's just gonna. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's gonna define 2018. Stability and genius. Just watch it happen. And and for those of you who haven't yet heard, that's a little reference to our uh, our uh, leader in chief in the U.S., Mister Mister Trump, who uh, who has ascribed himself. Uh, these traits of stability and genius in reference to um, his uh, his behavior relating to North Korea and uh, and all of his statements among other things. So, and who could deny that he is a, well, a stable genius? You look at all the all the headlines now, and they all say Trump says he's a stable genius, and like genius in quotes Trump. So he's getting all the headlines that are calling him stable and, and genius. Right. So I think he won again. He the mainstream media doesn't know when it's being trolled, really, does it? And my question is, what would they do if Trump didn't have a Twitter account for this past year, you know? I mean, what, what would they talk about, really? I mean, the other day when he when he came up with that statement, he uh, it was I checked and it was on all, <laughs> all the major mainstream media uh, news, news, news sites, you know, um, the headline across the board, you know, Trump, I'm a stable genius. Trump claims to be a stable genius. And then some people give the actual quote of uh, kind of stably and geniusy, like, you know, um, it's like, and that was the headline, you know, for like a whole day mm-hmm. or in some places for a couple of days, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, amazing. Very important news, you know, that Trump said something kind of stupid that he shouldn't really have said. They haven't figured out that he's just got a different approach to uh, to the presidency. And, you know, I suppose they're, fi- they're finally, maybe they're finally... Um, warm to it and just accept it for what it is, but um, they're still wetting their pants every time he says something inappropriate, quote unquote. You know, mm-hmm. and immodest. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that that was probably a response or reaction to the this new book that came out. Uh, is his name Michael Wolf? Wolf, yeah, I, something I Wolf. So. Um, the gist of it being that uh, the White House is in disarray and. And Trump regales his uh, his staff with stories about himself, and uh, yeah, he never wanted to be president, or he didn't think he'd be president. And... 
all yeah. kinds of stuff. And then uh, Trump's Trump and uh, you know Sarah Sanders and everyone says, oh, it's all lies. It's, none of it's true. And it was uh, you know, sloppy Steve Bannon who's making stuff up and mm-hmm. you know yeah all kinds of stuff. So, but I think it was actually. Yeah, it was in response to that, and maybe even um, what he's the, his tweets about uh, Kim Jong Un and his his uh, his back and forth with him, and because uh, then you know people were saying he's not stable because he was comparing the size of North Korea's nuclear buttons to Trump's nuclear buttons. And Trump yeah. said his his nuclear buttons are bigger, and, mm-hmm. and, and they work, <laughs> and they work, which is funny, you know. That's that's what I would say, you know. I mean, if you just had the approach of your president, you had the approach of just dispensing with all formality and, and that kind of stuff and just talking turkey type thing, talking uh, off the cuff like you would in a, kind of in a street or a bar or something, then, um, you know, that's the kind of thing you say, you know. Yeah, um, it's it's really, it's World world Wrestling Federation level stuff. And <laughs> and, mm. that's, and and that's the guy that Trump is, right? He, he was... That's his background. Wanted, yeah. Yes. And, and he's really kind of, I mean, if you've got a sense of humor and you can kind of you know, get over the fact that there's not going to be a nuclear war with North Korea, then it's yeah. it's really funny because you, you realize that this is, it is a really big, you know, game of world wrestling. And that's kind of the revelation that comes out of it is that you realize that that's really all of this stuff is. It's it's like high level inter, um, uh, you know, geopolitical world wrestling where it's just trash talk. And the, the thing is, is that, you know, every other president has, you know, taken it so seriously and kind of mm-hmm. puts on the act that it's serious. And Trump just mm-hmm. goes totally overboard and really exposes it for what it is. And the thing mm-hmm. is that it, it actually ends up working, you know, like we have in our, our show description for today. We can get ahead a little bit to North Korea where, you know, there's has been this really over the top back and forth between Kim and Trump. Mm-hmm. And to, to the, you know, where it escalated to the point of, you know, like we said, Trump comparing the size of their nuclear buttons where i mean at that point you, you've just got to kind of laugh and and at that point you realize okay there's there's no you know it, it's it's an act you know it's it's what you've got to say and and with kim because like north korea that's been their pretty much their um how do you call it like their mo or the way they do geopolitics is to just have the most over the top you know, bombastic statements, and they've been doing it for years. And you know, mm-hmm. if you've ever read their like official statements in their you know state newspapers and stuff, it, it's totally over the top stuff. Like, and it's pretty funny right. if if you mm-hmm. you know if you don't take it completely seriously. And so mm-hmm. Trump basically is doing the exact same thing back at Kim. And what mm-hmm. happened last week? You know, uh, the the North opened their direct communication channels to the South for the first time in like what over a year, mm-hmm. and said they want to work together for and, and make the you know the South Korean Olympics a, a thing and, and let them happen and they want to have some direct talks with with South Korea and <laughs> like that that doesn't sound like um, like nuclear war to mm. me that sounds like the, you know the beginnings of actually trying to de-escalate the situation so, right I yeah I mean Trump's just using the, the, I mean it's it's very common throughout <clears throat> history and in, in different countries and you mentioned North Korea as an example of it but there's other many other examples throughout history of uh, of leaders of a country running effectively a personality cult, mm-hmm. where that's what actually uh, you know galvanizes the people and keeps the people supportive of of their leader, which is that he's larger than life. He's like a you know the great and glorious leader. He's like a god. He's this kind of stuff, you know. And uh, Trump has taken on that that persona. He's said to run with that because partly because it's uh, his personality type. 
he's a Washington outsider, so he figured, well, I may as well do it my way. And I mean, look at his history. Of course, he's a, a he's a, a personality who revels in um, media attention and stuff like that. So he was always going to run his presidency uh, in that way. He was going to be the kind of person that that he is, you know. And <clears throat> but I mean, you could argue that Obama, for example, before him, there was a certain level uh, of personality cult around Obama as well. It, just, it was just more sedated, more sedate, and more um, you know, kind of more uh, quietly. Um, more presidential, quote unquote. Well, more presidential, and, and more, you know, people were more quietly in awe of him, you know. Uh, but the same level of <clears throat> kind of glorification of him uh, is there uh, as, as there is with Trump, you know. That was there with Obama, you know. And Obama just was a different kind of personality. But I mean, for us, people don't seem don't really seem to understand why why we don't mind this happening with. With Trump, because um, we've seen, it's been our opinion or our perspective that every pre- president before Trump in the U.S., or let's say most of them, it was all a bit of a farce. You know, they were putting on a show of being, you know, the world's greatest democracy and freedom and democracy, and uh, uh, all of these noble ideals. When behind the scenes, they were pretty much exactly the opposite. You know, certainly in terms of foreign policy, and their bunch. Of the rest of them are just a bunch of corrupt uh, kind of, uh, you know, mafia types, you know. So for uh, for that facade to be pulled down, unceremoniously pulled down, and to be turned into something of a farce is for us, under Trump, is for us simply, uh, you know, a, a, an unveiling of a, of a truer, uh, per, truer view of, of American politics, which mm-hmm. is that it is a big SH1T show, basically. Uh, and there's all sorts of infighting and and double dealing and stuff and and it's good it's good that that's come out and that the american people are being forced to uh, uh see the those people that believed in the dream type thing are forced to see the reality you know yeah and that, that that's kind of the the revelation that's it's 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 hard to see i think for a lot of people but the like the the takeaway message is that what trump is is what every other president has been but they just haven't realized it Mm-hmm. Now, they've thought that they've been, you know, they thought like Obama was, you know, genuinely the way he appeared. Well, he was essentially just Trump, but without the, the over the topness of it. But it, mm-hmm. on like the essential level, they're the same thing. Like Trump or Obama was still, you know, putting on a show. They all were. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that the very same things about, you know, Obama were said of the by the far right in this country. I mean, how many times did they pin him in a, in a kind of a category of uh fascistic, um, uh, despotic rule uh, for their own sets of reasons, um, where the left is doing this in much the same way with, uh, with Trump. Um, so it's, it's really two sides of the same coin in, in many cases. But uh, maybe on that note, we'd, um, we'd like to move to one of the central stories that we want to cover this week. Yeah, we can come back to Trump. Yeah, oh, we'll have to. Uh, <laughs> it's inevitable. Mm. Um, so Thursday, December 28th, um, there were some protests that began in Iran uh, that uh, were ostensibly um, in reaction to uh, the price hikes that many people were experiencing in the cost of uh, chicken and, and other items, gas. Uh, there were also some, uh, I think, uh, peripheral kind of labor uh, issues. Uh these these protests started pretty small, 
but very rapidly within just a few days uh, turned into an almost nationwide um, uh, mass protest uh, that turned into uh, instances of rioting. Uh, police stations were attacked. Uh, Iran's capital, Tehran, saw some of this as well. Um, and instantly, pretty much, uh, the West, Western media, corporate media, in the U.S. especially, uh, grabbed onto this story and conflated it into a, a kind of a human rights issue uh, where Iran's tyrannical government was, you know, basically uh, crushing its people and, and making things miserable for them. And, and now this had to be a, a discussion that was brought to the uh, U.N. Security Council. Um, this was a, a movement on the part of Nikki Haley, uh, and uh, there's been a, a huge lovely uh, Nikki. No, tricky Nikki Haley. Um, Trixie Nixie. Trixie Nixie. She she made these statements, uh, and um, pretty much uh, all of the UN Security Council and many other countries and leaders in Europe came back at her and said, "No, this is an internal." situation and and you're conflating it you're making it into something that is uh much um much bigger and and global in scale and and it's not so mm -hmm. we have that as well um so that's a few of the broad strokes uh that we're looking at uh, mm -hmm. and um we can get into the fact uh, that there are some legitimate grievances that the iranian people have been protesting about uh, but there's a very good argument um, to be made of the fact that uh, these grievances are being co-opted by some right. very powerful global interests that would like to see the narrative on Iran turn a little more intense. And mm -hmm. uh, the timing is certainly very interesting as well. And we can get into that too. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, the thing that people forget about... Uh well, obviously, anybody who, I mean, I don't know if anybody listened to Nikki Haley's um, kind of speech, you know, um, I think it was at the UN, where she uh, gave, it was just, you know, she was reading from the script of uh, of regime change, you know, about America talking about, you know, <clears throat> the free the freedom, this is the cry of freedom for, from the American, uh, Iranian people, and America must support them and do something about it, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> It, it, it's not very encouraging to think that a lot of people would have actually been uh, fooled by that kind of a speech when we've heard it so many times before um, from a U.S. ambassador or a U.S. politician or president or whatever uh, in uh, effectively arguing for um, you know what ultimately in the past has been uh, the destruction or the invasion or some other uh, in some other way the the, the co-opting of of an entire country you know and its descent into chaos. But that's what America argues for with these words of freedom and supporting, you know, democracy and the rights of the people in some other country. Ultimately, what happens is the country goes to hell. <clears throat> and there's so many examples of that. Um, the idea that anybody would have believed the drivel coming out of that woman's mouth um, is, is a bit depressing. But uh, I hold out some hope that a lot of people didn't uh, just kind of like, yeah, 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 whatever. Uh, of course, there's the bleeding heart humanitarians who would have who would always you know support that kind of uh, 
uh, a call to, to arms for freedom and democracy in some far off country, uh, and particularly in the West and in America. But um, I think more and more so, the more they the more they use that tactic, the more um, the more people just see it as uh, the same old story coming out of the U.S., which is you know arguing using uh, f- fancy words, high sounding words, uh, and for very um, selfish. Uh, goals or interests mm-hmm. on the part of the U.S. government. So, um, well, and totally, you, totally misrepresenting like what the protests were actually about. At least right. from from what I could tell, like the, it, it would almost be as if, like back when the Occupy protests were going on in the states, as if Canada were to say, you know, to go to Canada's UN representative would go to the UN Security Council and be like, yeah. "Oh, this is the cry for freedom from the American people." Mm-hmm. Like, well. Not, not really. Like, did you? That's not really what they're saying. Like, it doesn't really make any sense. Like, so, mm. the, the it's not like the Iranian people were all out in the streets and droves, you know, wanting their freedom from this totalitarian government. No, they were, no. you know, the ones out in the streets were protesting, like Alan said, for very like specific e- economic reasons. Right. And, and there were in exactly the same way that Occupy Wall Street were doing. Right. Exactly. And there were some um, some rioters. Who were who had like you know anti-regime slogans and posters and you know placards and things like that, um, just like there are in you know Western protests. And so I guess you could say, oh, well, those people are fighting for their freedom because they you know fundamentally disagree with the um, you know the way the, the Iranian government is, is set up. But those, but at the same time, those are the the rioters. Those are the you know essentially the you know the the black. Uh, mask covered you know rioters in the states antifa and um you know the anarchists when like no one supports those kind of protesters in their own country like ever no matter you know if it's the you know because they break stuff you know and they kill people and uh and they hurt you know they hurt people and they just they just uh you know make a mess of things so on the one hand you had uh, so if you could break up the protesters, you could say those fighting for like freedom in the in the Western sense, you know, in the sense that Nikki Haley's talking about, are the rioters and the you know the violent people, and the rest of the, the vast majority of the protesters weren't like calling for the the you know a total revolution and um, you know remaking of the the entire government. I mean, so so they're kind of like even if you could say the hijack or the the rioters kind of hijacked the. The protests, really, it's the Americans and, uh, you know, all the Western interventionists and humanitarian, um, you know, people that hijacked the the protests because they made it into something that it wasn't about. Like the the, the protests were protesting things that the government said, OK, yeah, you're you're right about that and we're, we're going to try to fix it. And OK, so the protesters can respond to that. And and, the, and they apparently have, you know, the, a lot of the. The big protests, you know, involving these types of people have died down. And at that point, it becomes, you know, a matter between the government and those people where now it's the government's um, turn to basically show that they will take those demands seriously and do something about them. And then it's the people's, you know, job to hold them accountable to that. And, you know, there will probably be, probably be more protests if the government doesn't do anything about it. Like that's the way it works in a you know a sovereign country. The people dealing with the government and the government dealing with the people. It's oh, just wait. We lost Joe. Okay, <clears throat> but I think I just finished my point there. Mm-hmm. Um, Audience, can you hear us? Yeah, we're still on. We're still on. And Joe is back. Well, 
I just just mm -hmm. adding to what you said there, Harrison. Uh, you know, it's a testament to the character or integrity of uh, President uh, Hassan Rouhani uh, that he, you know, he came out and he basically said, "Look, I, I acknowledge this as a as an issue, as a problem, and uh, and we are going to work on it." Um, and you know, he he didn't. Uh, <laughs> He didn't take the entire situation and say, um, you know, this is all uh, bullshit. Uh, this is all uh, this is entirely a a Western backed uh, attempt at uh, at destabilizing Iran. Uh, he he gave it the situation and the the kind of feelings of the Iranians who were legitimately um, protesting about this their due. Uh, at the same time, uh, he and others in Iran, including the ambassador to the UN, were able to come out and say, you know, yes, we have issues that we have to deal with. But at the same time, make no mistake, uh, there have been outside uh, influences um, that have propelled or, or uh, um, made larger uh, these protests uh, for their own political purposes, and um, and there there has been some allusion to evidence that would be brought out to connect those Western influences to, uh, mm -hmm. to what we've been seeing. And just one more comment on the on the actual protests themselves is that um, like it it really displays kind of uh, an ignorance and kind of a willful ignorance on the part of both the Western commentators and the people that just get kind of caught up in the you know, Twitterverse or whatever's going on to make them aware of this. And that's the kind of <clears throat> political you know, demographic breakdown of, of the, you know, kind of what we'd call the left and the right in Iranian politics, because in, in Iran, unlike in the, in the West where, you know, the left is more kind of like, uh, um, you know, socialist and, uh, you know, the right is more kind of free market. Well, in Iran, the the people that like the the, the hardliners, like more of the Ahmadinejad um, supporters, they're more like socialists. They want more kind of um, government involvement and um, you know, I guess you'd call it like subsidies or you know, public support for um, for the the ordinary people. Like they want more benefits, basically. And uh, Rouhani, who's more of a moderate, um, you know, who who is actually not very popular among certain segments of the Iranian populace because he wants better relations with the West, for example. Um, and that's kind of the moderate position. They, they're more like kind of free market. So a lot of the people that are protesting Rouhani's economic policies are actually more hardline, uh, you know, Iranian mm -hmm. Republic than the, mm -hmm. you know, than, than Rouhani's supporters. For example, right. So the the West is basically supporting a bunch of pr protesters who, if they had their way, would you know want Ahmadinejad back back in power, and Ahmadinejad, mm -hmm. Ahmadinejad was like the next Hitler, you know, mm -hmm. back when he was in power. So it's it's just it, everything's upside down and completely backwards, and just it just shows how um, you know opportunistic and cynical the support of of the protests is. It's just purely for you know a Western um, you know interest. And it has nothing to do, or very little to do, mm -hmm. I'll say. Maybe, you know, there's always a tiny bit to do with what's actually going on. Yeah, and from an economic perspective, one of the main thing that the protesters were protesting, uh, the legit legitimate uh, 
concerns of the or complaints of the protesters was uh, effectively austerity measures, uh, a law that was kind of passed uh, recently in Iran that was effectively austerity measures. And that's something that uh, Western democracies have been proscribing for their own people mm-hmm. uh, for the past uh, you know, 10 years. So from an economic point of view, it makes complete sense as well. It's, it's ideologically or e- economically, it's, it's in line with Western policies as, lo- as well as uh, from a political point of view, the Rouhani government. Obviously, and we've seen that, that was a, Rouhani was a government that, um, that Obama could do the deal with, you know. Um, and so, yeah, the other thing people forget about is that, you know, if America didn't have 300 million people, it would be very easy, relatively easy for, um, you know, if it had a much smaller population, it would be very easy for another country to incite uh, these kind of uh, protests or encourage them and lead them up to some kind of a civil war or a coup in the USA. It's only because America has 300 plus million people that that, that makes that impossible, really, you know, because of the size and the number of people you see. I mean, that the kind of regime change that the, the US has uh, encouraged or provoked or fomented in um, in other countries only happens in, sm- in countries that are re- very small, relatively speaking. Um, over the past number of years, like in Syria, there's 26 million people, in Iraq, similar number of people, um, Libya, much less, you know. Um, so it's with with that number of with a very small, relatively small population, it's easy to to get enough people in there to whip it up and to create chaos and create the appearance of a, a kind of civil war. Um, but it's it, it's not possible really to do it in past a certain size of country. And in this case, Iran, obviously, it fell flat in its face because um, uh, they can't do it. Iran has 80 million people. Mm-hmm. Be a country for anybody, like uh, even the, the great USA, to to foment a, a regime change, and, uh, and I mean, you'll never see the US su- successfully causing regime change in China, although they've tried it uh, to some extent with uh, in the past, and there's even some some suggestion of their of them involvement in the whole Tiananmen Square business, and uh, and and then more recently with the Hong Kong protests a few years back, uh, but it, it goes nowhere, you know, because the country is far too big to. Uh, um, to, to carry that out, um, so America is lucky, you know, in that sense, you know, because if it was a smaller country, smaller population, if there was those kind of Wall Street protests that happened uh, with a smaller population, that, you know, if a country like Russia or China or whoever uh, felt like it, they could do exactly the same thing to the USA, you know, mm-hmm. and it would work, you know, because there's plenty of uh, social <clears throat> kind of. Uh, Fracture, fracture lines in, in, in the USA for like, that could be easily provoked if you threw enough money and people and organizing power at it. Mm-hmm. And, and just to put some of what you said into scale, Joe, uh, you know, the, the numbers, the relative numbers of people who are protesting, um, or at least the rioters, were, were very small. I mean, they were talking about right. uh, just a, really just a few hundred people nationwide who were acting mm. violently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, next to the several hundred people who were uh, who were peaceably demonstrating um, regarding the austerity measures. Well, mm-hmm. and, the official number, the latest official number I, I've read from Iranian sources is around <coughs> like forty five thousand protesters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in every <clears throat> in every Twitter video of the actual kind of rioting and violence and kind of the, the guys saying the the anti anti regime slogans and stuff. It was only ever like you know 
a dozen to two people in, in any one of these groups. So yeah, right. probably like in the hundreds for the rioters, but it was in well, the it, tens of thousands for the protesters. And even 45,000 is, is out of a population of 80 million and cut that you know, down by two thirds or whatever to, for the adult population. You're still talking about like less than a tenth of 1% of the population. Yeah. Yeah. Less than 0.1% of the population protests, and America goes to the UN and calls a UN Security Council meeting yeah. uh, to, to, to galvanize the world to do something about the grievances of this 0.1% of a population of a country? Yeah, like really? Who, call, who called the UNSC for the Occupy protests, right? <laughs> mm. And you know what? The Occupy protests could have easily, I mean, there was something up to maybe 20 people killed, but there were policemen killed as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had the same situation in the US, if, you, if someone could have interfered in the Occupy Wall Street protests uh, and uh, you know, roused or rabble-roused those, those people to the point of being much more violent and, and maybe even uh, attacking, you know, attacking, physically attacking and killing policemen, you bet your ass that the U.S. would have shot a bunch of them as well. Mm-hmm. No doubt. So, so there's absolutely no difference here. There's this false kind of moral kind of superiority going on. But, you know, America is no better than any country, uh, really. Uh, you know, any major, let's say, developed or developing country in the world. No, it's, not, it's no better than any of them. But, it, of course, it's, it, it, uh, it rides high on the, on the appearance or the, the mythos of it being uh, so much so, so, so superior, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, one interesting thing that I, you know, I just thought of was, you know, the, one of the famous pictures that's going around um, Twitter is the young woman, you know, standing up on something with a, you know, a stick and hanging from the stick is her hijab. Mm-hmm. Her, well, not even her hijab, okay, hijab, no, her headscarf. Yeah, her headscarf. That's what people don't realize about in Iran as well. Just hold that point for a second, Harrison. Yeah. Uh, in Iran, there's a, it's very, 80 million people, that's a lot of people. Um, there's different stripes, different types, just as there's uh, fundamentalist uh, Christians uh, and um, in the U.S., um, there are kind of extremists, or not extremists, but fundamentalist uh, Muslims. In, in, in most Muslim countries, you know, there's a section of the population that are very devout. And, and those people choose to uh, wear the kind of full, uh, the women in particular choose to wear the, the full um, hijab and cover themselves fully. And then in, in bigger cities like Tehran, um, there are, there's a much more cosmopolitan, younger population who, who don't and don't want to. And the, you, see, you see in Iran, you see uh, uh, in many places, you see women simply wearing Kind of or it's basically just a scarf, like a, a scarf you or I or anyone might, might wear, uh, and it's kind of half off her head, you know. So half of her hair is exposed, all of her face is exposed, and she just, you know, it's quite nice actually. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's 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 quite nice. It's a, it's a it's a it's a fashionable, it's a fashion statement almost. You know, uh, anybody in any Western country and many dress in a similar fashion. You know, um, so it's very nuanced, you know, across all of Iran in terms of in the same way as in any country where you have more devout religious people and then more secular liberal people. And um, and there is no real enforcement, certainly in the past X number of years, or let's say five or ten years, there's been no significant enforcement of of forcing those more secular or cosmopolitan or liberal women to to cover up like, you know, in a, in a trash bag, basically. Um mm-hmm. Uh, right. But but of course, listening to the Western press, you'd, you'd think that uh, all women on pain of death in Iran are forced to cover up completely. And if they don't, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's just it's just BS narratives that you get uh, that miss the obviously nuanced uh, aspect of of life in any country. You know, right. So so the point I was going to make is kind of along those lines. Um, 
that there are like Islamic police, you know, that go around and make sure that, uh, you know, the cer- certain Islamic precepts are, you know, upheld. And that would include wearing the scarf, you know, even in the, in the manner that you described where it's just, it's basically like a fashion statement. And you can see it a lot of times it's, it's pretty loosely held. You can see the hair and, uh, you know, they can be wearing heels and a skirt, you know, and, and, and this headscarf. And, you know, like Joe said, it looks kind of nice, but, <laughs> but, um, um, so just, I think it was just like just over a week ago. I think it was right before the protests started. There was an article that we put up on Sat where um, the Iranian government said that even like that they would that they would stop enforcing, um, you know, those minor infractions like not wearing the headscarf, because something like you know five thousand women, you know in the last year or two or something have been fined or something for, for not wearing the headscarf. So they said they're not going to, you know, they're the, over the years, you know, the, the enforcement rates have been going down and they're going to kind of stop devoting resources to that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so then right after that, we have this, this photo that goes viral and it, and it kind of, it, it's like the, the poster for the revolution when uh first of all you know i read i can't verify it but i'd read that that picture was taken actually at a protest um prior to these protests that it actually you know prior to these protests starting so before december 28th and it kind of just got uh you know glommed on to to the current protests and that you know this woman was protesting that that provision you know that law and Mm -hmm. and so right around that time the, the government said, okay, we're going to deal with it. You know, basically we got to enter the 21st century and it's not going to be as big a deal as it, as it used to be. And, and so instead of focusing on that and being like, oh, great, you know, the Iranian government is making a good decision. This is moving in the right direction. Kind of like with Saudi Arabia, you know, any, you know, as, as underhanded or as like political uh, a move as, as the one or as the ones that we've seen in Saudi Arabia, you know, to let women go to concerts and, and, uh, drive. and drive, you know, as, as ridiculous as it is that they have to, you know, make those, make those allowances in the first place, you know, they should be supported because at least it's a move in the right direction, right? Regardless of if it's just for PR purposes, you know, if that's what they're doing, mm-hmm. go ahead. Great. You know, so instead of doing that for Iran, you know, and being like, good move, you know, more of that, you know, we're on your side, guys, you know, keep, keep it up. No, totally ignore that. And then just, you know, turn it into, you know, viewing Iran as this, you know, just as totally backwards and, and getting worse. It's like, it's well, totally you know, dishonest. You know what that picture reminded me of? So uh, at the beginning of the Maidan, you had this beautiful young woman uh-huh. uh, who was videotaped talking about uh, corruption and freedom uh, and of course, we later found out that that uh, this was produced by a American, uh, some kind of marketing company mm-hmm. connected to U.S. intelligence. I mean, this is uh, if if anybody's ever seen the film Wag the Dog um, uh, with Dustin Hoffman, uh, do see it. It's all about the very business of, and we've talked about this before on the show, uh, of of marketing regime change. U.S. style. Um, so it reminded me about, it, it reminded me greatly of that. Um, and just to get back to an earlier point, uh, separate from this issue, um, something that, that mainstream media in the U.S. didn't really cover quite well was the fact that uh, the Iranian people uh, 
kind of knew what the score was, uh, that even if there were problems uh, in Iran that are legitimate, uh, it, it wasn't enough to merit the type of reaction that was coming out of the U.S. And so you had thousands of people uh, who were pro-government coming out and uh, in, in these mass demonstrations as well and, uh, and saying, you know what, we're not buying it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was an interesting dimension to this whole, uh, this whole thing as well. Um, you know, people kind of rallying around, uh, the fact that they want their government to be sovereign, warts and all, mistakes and all, and they don't want any outside interference, uh, because they know what it's about and they know who's behind it. And, um, maybe, maybe we can get into uh, a little bit of that right now, um, because mm-hmm. uh, uh, shortly before all of this happened, um, former General McMaster of the Trump administration met with his counterpart in Israel. Uh, and I'm, I'm a little short on details about that, but it, it seemed like they had come to some kind of agreement um, whereby there would be this kind of four-pronged approach to um, challenging the Iran problem. Mm-hmm. So uh, you had that, you had all of the kind of uh, uh, anti-Iran rhetoric coming from Saudi Arabia only a month or two ago uh, that were that was kind of jointly made with Israel. And, um, you know, they, they, they know they can't come at this completely uh, militarily. It has to be done in, in some other way. There has to be, the narrative still has to be fed that, that Iran is worthy of, uh, of um, attack by the West, be it economically, uh, politically, socially, they can't, they can't go full frontal on this. Um, so, it, you know, I just find the timing <laughs> rather mm-hmm. convenient. Uh, you know, it's like a, it, it's, it's in, in a way it's a, it's, it's quite predictable. Um, on December 29th, uh, there's a, a writer, Bernard of Moon of Alabama, who we like to um, include in a lot of SART articles. We like to publish a lot of his works because he, he is able to anticipate a lot of things. And he basically called it. He said, you know, look forward to uh, the kind of left's uh, freedom fighting for Iran in the Twitterverse coming very soon. Look forward to the neocons making statements about the necessity for the Trump administration to be strong against, uh, to come out strong against Iran. And sure enough, only days later, like clockwork, all of these things came to pass. Uh, And it's sort of like, it's such a, it's such a program. It's such a, um, Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a systematic set of uh, of political and social statements that that get made that we're so used to seeing time and time again that you just kind of plug in the program and and there it goes and uh, mm. and and we're seeing it right now with Iran. Right, and the other thing that I couldn't uh, help but notice, and it's kind of in the background there, but you, know, you had Trump Trump making this announcement about uh, Jerusalem being uh, being the capital of Israel. Um, and we speculated at the time that this was what this was kind of early December, right? Um, we speculated at the time that uh, that he was gonna that was gonna get him some some favors, you know, or some certainly he could pull some pull some strings or uh, with uh, let's say with the Jewish lobby in the U.S. And we speculated at the time that it might have been uh, we might see the easing up of of the whole FBI. Uh, 
Mueller um, investigation into Trump and the harassing of him over the Russia collusion business. And sure enough, um, around that time, the whole thing started on Mueller's investigation started to unravel uh, quite a lot. And the focus started to turn more on on Clinton and on, on Mueller and his investigation himself and the FBI and their, their partisan politics, basically. Mm-hmm. And that whole thing has, at this point, really does seem to have been discredited, you know, uh, to a large extent. It kind of has fizzled and, and gone away. Of course, it's still officially ongoing, but I, I, I have a definite sense of it, of, of the uh, the kind of uh, strength being being having, having been taken out of it, mm-hmm. uh, not not going anywhere. And then hot on the heels of that then we have um we have the iran thing you know um and not only that but just previous to that you had <clears throat> in fact as part of the 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 lightening up or the the reduction in, in focus on on trump and the russia collusion mm-hmm. after he announced the jerusalem thing you had this brief anyway focus on uh, as, as a diversion, as to turn the tables on on Mueller and the FBI and their support of Clinton, for example, you had the uh, the focus on on Obama uh, and his the the allegation that he had uh, uh, basically given the the DEA or the Hezbollah Hezbollah a pass when the DEA and the FBI etc were investigating Hezbollah for some kind of uh, international drug running. Uh, operation and that Obama uh, several years ago had kind of like nixed that investigation in order to um, to appease Iran uh, because obviously Iran has our allies and this was supposedly at the behest of Iran because and then there's almost like a, a precondition or a condition for for the Iranian deal being done basically Obama was snuggling up to Iran getting the Iran deal done and as part of that he was told to stay this supposed investigation of Hezbollah. Um, now that that was over the past few weeks and uh, brought some supposedly negative press to corruption in the Obama administration, as opposed to corruption in, in Trump and you know Russia collusion and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that also focused negative attention on Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. And then immediately after that, we have this Iranian business where Iran is uh, there's protests in Iran, Iran is demonized, etc. And all of that is kind of loosely, but quite pointedly, I think, tied to uh, the interests of Israel, obviously, because both Hezbollah and Iran are the two countries that, the two uh, groups, let's say, that um, Israel loves to hate on and wants America to hate on as much as possible. And we saw that happening immediately after Trump announces Jerusalem as the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of circumstantial, but it's interesting nonetheless. It's kind of like a uh, a two-for-one type of thing where the heat is taken off Trump by this refocusing on Obama slash uh, Obama and Hezbollah, and also um, then Israel gets something out of it by an attempted, you know, demonization, global demonization of of Iran. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, you know, Netanyahu has. Netanyahu is basically in the White House, uh, you know, through Jared Kushner. Um, that's something that it, it's it's funny that that doesn't really well. It's not really funny. It's it's totally understandable that that doesn't get talked about at all. You know, 
several weeks ago we talked about Russia Gate and how you know if 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 they were being serious you know they'd be talking about Israel Gate because that's where all the American collusion is with the Israeli government and like just some background on Jared Kushner um his his family like his father Charles Kushner um very tight with Netanyahu when Netanyahu would come to the United States he would stay at Kushner's place he would actually sleep in Jared Kushner's bed. Mm-hmm. Um, like apparently these guys don't, uh, you know, Kushner, they didn't have a guest bedroom. So I guess he just, did he get anybody to pee on it? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Maybe. Well, you know, I was wondering if Jared, I, was I could write up it at the time, I, but I don't well, yeah, well, I could write up a dossier on that. If you want, like. <laughs> and, uh, we'll pay you a million dollars, Joe. <clears throat> don't. And, uh, well, there's, there's a couple, uh, well, there's this one, like, uh, there's Ryan Dawson, an anti-neocon report. He did a, a whole little documentary on, on the Kushners. And just getting into just the amount of crime in that family, mm-hmm. like the, the father's a, you know, a felon. He was in prison for, for two years. And like just the kind of stuff that that guy got, got up to, like any, well, the way Dawson put it, um, you know, I, I listened to an interview with him. He said every stone that he tried to un, unturn, he found some like convicted crime and, and lawsuit and trial and like one of the things that Charles Kushner did, he he hi, he hired a prostitute to um, like for this sting operation to catch his brother-in-law in order to blackmail like his sister, and and uh, and he spent like thirty-five thousand dollars to do it, and then he got caught, um, and but and and his brother didn't even um, or his his sister sorry didn't even you know it didn't even work on her she just said yeah i don't care um whatever but like uh and they just total like so much corruption um with the the port authority um new york and new jersey and it's it's just amazing the amount of crime that these guys get up to and they're totally in bed like with israel and so so jared kushner is in the white house and you know i don't i don't know what his um you know, how much of it is just like, you know, the sins of the father and how much Kushner himself, Jared, is is in on this stuff and how, um, you know, how, let's say, fanatical he is, like his father. Um, you know, by every indication, he seems to be in that direction, at least. He goes along with what is, you know, the, the, the standards that his dad set up, like by, mm-hmm. you know, funding, uh, you know, settlements in, uh, in the West Bank. But, um, I mean... Netanyahu mm-hmm. slept in the guy's bed. I mean, this like they're they're one step removed from being in bed together. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. right. Yeah. Well, there's yeah, there's a scandal right there, but apparently it's not the right scandal, you know. But it's not, I'm not surprised, obviously, that um, that Kushner's father would be uh, has a criminal background and would be best friends with Netanyahu because obviously Netanyahu is a is a uh, <laughs> you know he's an arch criminal criminal himself, and and that's not just uh, an ad hominem attack. That's uh, you know. Mm-hmm. There's the, there's there's court um, court proceedings going on dealing directly with uh, Netanyahu's corruption and not just him, but that's it's also interesting that uh, over the past um, I think th- this week uh, for the sixth week in a row there have been thousands of people yeah and anti and in, in anti corruption protests in the st- in the streets of Israel yeah go to, now, go to the, the number the United Nations Security Council. Well, yeah, we should because you know what? The number of people protesting there, there's several thousand people. Now, Israeli population, even like the Palestinian population, that's actually more people in the streets in Israel than, than there were in Iran. Mm-hmm. Percentage wise, yeah. 
Right. So, um, but it's for six weeks, and you don't hear a word about it. Mm-hmm. Why? 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 Well, I don't know. Else. Maybe there's a reason. Maybe Jordan Peterson mm-hmm. should be notified. <laughs> yes. About the protests going on in the in the what would you call it? The cradle of Western civilization. <laughs> Not Iran, but Israel. And, and of course, Joe, you're referencing uh, Peterson's statements in support of the protesters in Iran. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, Peterson Peterson's should stick to psychology and uh, right. you know, spend a couple of years getting up to date on geopolitics because yeah, yeah, his epidermis is showing. Exactly. Well, just to get back to Netanyahu for a moment, um, you know, he had to or felt compelled to get onto Israeli television recently and make statements we have nothing to do with you know the uh with, with nothing the recent doings <laughs> we're innocent <With> anything <laughs> uh he was responding to allegations of israeli involvement in uh, the protests and violence uh, recently in iran uh and of course he took the opportunity to say that he was in full support of irani iranian freedom and justice and um you know of course he couldn't care less he has his whole coalition and his presidency on the line with this, with the recent corruption uh, case that's being brought against him by uh, the Israeli High Court uh, or police um, division of some kind. Uh, but it's a pretty strong case that's being made against him. Um, and of course, he has had a uh, he has had a kind of let's say um, uh, an urge. Uh, a criminal, a kind of criminal, pathological urge to suppress and, and oppress and destabilize Iran for decades. Uh, it's mm-hmm. documented. So this is this is kind of his wet dream to see uh, to see the West covering these recent protests to the level that they have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so he gets on the air. He says these things. He says he's in support of uh, Iranian freedom, and. Um, and of course, he's fighting for his political life at the same time, and uh, and it's I think to his mind the perfect opportunity to deflect from any controversy regarding him, and mm-hmm. uh, look over there, look at the enemy again, uh, look at the people who want to destroy us, and um, and he he has been after the uh, debacle in in Syria, by his perspective, that is you know Russia and Iran and the Syrians being able to uh, mainly rout uh, the jihadi forces that have been uh, propagated there. Uh, they are absolutely desperate, Israel is, and elements of the U.S., to gain some kind of foothold with their agenda in, in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this is a part of that, I think. Just right. Somewhat of a, of a tangential comment. It just... It, <laughs> It really amazes me that, um, you know, all the people on the right, you know, from the conservative camp, conservatives of various sorts, like that are like anti-SJW and identity identity politics and things like that. Like you look at all of them and all the big YouTube personalities, for example, and they're all pro-Israel. Mm. And it, 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 I just find it really funny that they, they can't see that Israel is like the identity politics, like fail, like to the nth degree. They epitomize everything wrong about identity politics and everything that the, you know, that the conservatives say, uh, criticize about identity politics and the whole SJW movement applies 
like textbook quality to Israel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, an, give us an example. Like the the whole victim mentality, the whole like, right. Jewish identity thing. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. it's like the the Israel is founded on Jewish identity, and it's the you know the group over the over the individual and this goes back to the foundation of israel before the foundation of of israel this was like epitomized in the way that the the jewish terror groups operated like they just they there's this one incident it was in i think it was 1947 can't remember the name of the ship but there were like jewish refugees that would be sent to to palestine and the haganah maybe well it it might have been the haganah or, or stern or you know um but what, whichever of the group was, there was this ship with uh, with um, refugees, Jewish refugees, mm-hmm. and um, because Palestine, they had like a quota, like they'd take like <clears throat> like forty thousand or something at any given time in a year or something. And when there were too too many, they would send out the boats of of the rest of these refugees to other countries, you know, not back to Germany or Poland or wherever. And so there was this ship with you know hundreds of Jewish refugees on it, and one of these Jewish terror groups bombed the ship and killed everyone on it <laughs> because they didn't want, you know, the refugees to leave. That would be bad PR for the, the Zionist movement. They wanted the, the Jewish refugees to stay and they wanted Jews to be afraid of leaving so that they, they would voluntarily stay because they might get, you know, they might get killed if they, if they left. Now the, they, the, this terror group, whichever one it was said, Oh, this was just a mistake. We didn't mean to actually kill all of the, all of the uh, people we just wanted to, you know, dis- disable the boat, but uh, um, but the only thing they were concerned of was that this would now be bad for their image because now mm-hmm. that they, now they'd be seen as the ones to uh, to be uh, you know killing Jews, right? You know, Jewish terror groups. So uh, that that was I just you know gave that as an example of you know the collective you know the group the identity over the individual. Um, mm-hmm. but, but it, 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 translates into pretty much, you know, every sphere of life when you, when you look at Israel where mm-hmm. it, it's the, it's the total victim mentality. Yes. It's, um, we are always persecuted. We're persecuted because of our group status, because mm-hmm. we're Jews mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. therefore, you know, and, and the, the problem isn't, you know, any individual Jews and it's not any individual Palestinians, it's Palestinians as a group. And so you see um, you know, ordinary Jews, IDF soldiers, you know, military police, um, you can see activists go and confront them, you know, as they're patrolling the, you know, in the West Bank. And these people will say all, you know, Palestinians are terrorists and they'll just openly say it. Mm-hmm. And so, so that, what is that if not like the epitome of identity politics? Look, you know, taking two groups, dividing them in two, you know, you've got your Group A and Group B. Group A is all good. All the problems are caused caused by Group B, and everyone in Group B is identical, and they're treated in the same way. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, you know, that's what uh, you know the the anti-identity politics people criticize mm-hmm. about identity politics SJWs is that they're essentially racists at racist at the core. You know, the thing that they mm-hmm. profess to be against when they are the racists because they they view groups collectively and homogeneously, and that's exactly mm-hmm. how Israelis view Palestinians. Right. Well, the the other part of that equation, uh, this kind of cult of victimhood you're describing, Harrison, because I've been thinking a lot about this recently myself in in similar terms. Um, you know, the uh, you can't argue with the fact that uh, 5.5 or 6 million Jews were killed uh, during World War II. Uh, by the same token, it's become this, uh, and we've said this many times here, 
uh, it's become the the kind of uh, shield or justification uh, that um, permits in the minds of many Israelis to to say never again and to uh, act so uh, oppressively, uh, violently uh, towards Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and in a strange kind of way, a lot of, a lot of people have bought into this. Uh, it's when the lesson here should be learned that you don't want to oppress any group of people, any minority. Um, they have twisted that and turned it around and made it a, uh, they've weaponized it effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. is, is um, you know, the imperial victimhood of the U.S. is, is Russiagate. They're trying to subvert our democracy. We're victims of Russia. They're, mm. you know, they're, they're cryptographic wiles and their manipulations. They're, they're so sophisticated. Putin's former KGB, you know, uh, mm. he ordered this, that, and the other thing against us. Uh, Hillary Clinton isn't president because of Russia. Mm. Uh, it's, this, it's this victimhood mentality in the service of empire that... Um, that is largely lost on on the part of uh, the SJW crew. Uh, there was a, a recent comment on all this. I think it was Caitlin Johnston in one of the articles we published who said that they're they're no different than conservatives in that respect, except that conservatives wear cowboy hats and SJWs wear pink hair. Uh, right. But but they but essentially that... buy into the similar things. <clears throat> But isn't that the same? I mean, isn't that the problem, the fundamental problem, and, and the ridiculousness of the whole idea of identity politics, uh, which is that the people who are shouting about it, uh, complaining about, you know, let's say leftist identity politics, uh, in their in their response to it, and their arguments against, in their arguments against it, they end up, um, you know, identifying using identity politics themselves. They they fall back and you know kind of, you know, uh, group together into their own identities, their own, and then they strengthen uh, and, and make real an identity that was only there in the background and no one ever, you know, really talked about it much or thought it was a thing, basically. It just was just lived as a part of daily life and wasn't thought about. Uh, but by railing against leftist identity politics, social justice warriors, you know, um, you know, non-binary, transgender, blah, 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 and railing against them, the, what you see, the opposition to them are basically a bunch of conservative white people who all now espouse their own identity politics. So apparently identity politics itself isn't a problem. It's just my identity politics versus your identity politics. And and that, like you're saying, Harrison, that's lost on these people. You know that they're actually they're doing exactly the same thing. Um that the group that they're arguing about, uh, the, the, uh, they're doing exactly the same thing as the group that they're arguing, arguing against, you know. Um, and it's obviously, a, it's a setup, you know. It's a trap to get people to uh, fall into their camps, you know, and to strongly identify with their with their group, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, at a social level, you know, what, what do these people think they can actually achieve? What, do they, what does anybody think they can achieve by def, by, by, through, through this process? Other than creating, kind of drawing lines, uh, and you know, creating the potential for kind of open kind of social conflict. Ultimately, if it's not contained properly, you know, uh, that's what they're. That's the stage we're in right now. Is this precursor to potential open social conflict? Because the first thing you have to to get kind of civil conflict between you have to have groups that are opposed to each other. 
Uh, so all you need to do is have one rise up, then you will, by definition, get another, have another group rise up against them, and boom, there you've got two. So you have all the things, all the elements you need for uh, for a conflict. Two pe- two groups of people, uh, you know, consumed with with their their idea of, of their identity and their ideology, and boom, okay, you just need to get some guns or something or some weapons and have them fight each other. And how anybody doesn't see the inherent kind of manipulation involved in that, even if no one. <clears throat> Even if some shadowy figures aren't actually pulling any strings behind the behind the behind the curtain type thing, if it's just a, a a thing that human beings are liable to do, well, you'd be well advised not to fall into that trap, you know, if you want to live in a peaceful society. But it seems more and more so that people in societies around the world today, and the West included, um, don't are are kind of you know well disposed towards the idea of uh, conflict. In their own societies, it's almost like they're they're eager for some kind of social conflict because maybe they're bored or something. I don't know, but um, it's just there's so little critical thinking uh, going on, you know, mm. in any of that, you know. But um, <clears throat> it's kind of like yeah. saying my my victimhood is bigger than your victimhood. Yeah, and 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 which the, is ridiculous. It's ridiculous, and and. Uh, my being angry about it to the extent that I am um, proves it because look at how angry and, and, and hypersensitive I am about these transgressions and, and these slights that are being made upon me and, and my, uh, my group. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, and you know, and that's, uh, that's the call to, that's the label of antisemitism as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had this, uh, um, I think this performer from either Australia or New Zealand uh, whose last name is Lord, uh, come out recently and say that she wasn't going to perform in Israel. Um, and uh, she was kind of aligning herself with the boycott, divest, uh, sanctions movement. Um, and, uh, you know, lo and behold, you have uh, Roseanne Barr and, and, and other people coming out and calling her bigoted. Uh, mm. You know, the, just a nicer way of calling her an anti-Semite, which is, mm-hmm. which is whatever... Which is what anybody gets called anytime they they come out in criticism of Israel's policies. It's not that they're anti-Semitic folks. It's mm. not that they're. It's not that people are anti-Jewish. It's the policy. Um. So yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, Why, like, go ahead. Like the the whole anti-Semitic thing. Well, <laughs> yeah. The, there are people that are anti-Jewish, just like there are people that are anti-Christian and mm-hmm. people that are anti-Islam, anti-Muslim. I mean, but so another one of those kind of funny, uh, I don't even know what to call it, um, funny things is that, on, you know, from these conservative types that I've been talking about, they'll, they'll make the argument that there's no such thing as, as, as Islamic phobia or sorry, Islamophobia, Islamophobia, for example, and they'll, they'll write articles about it and, uh, and they make some good points, you know, I'll give them that. But then in the same article, they might write, oh, but, and, you know, a, a critic might, you know, offer, you know, the, the criticism, oh, well, if you say there's no such thing as Islamophobia, couldn't you say the same thing about anti-Semitism? Well, no, anti-Semitism is real, but mm-hmm. Islamophobia isn't. And it's like, well, you know, wait a second. You, no, you can't have it both ways. It's like, because the arguments that a, a lot of these people make against there being a, such a thing as Islamophobia can be made for saying there's no such thing as anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... You've got to give a little bit on both ways. So, you know, 
So there may not be Islamophobia in some of the ways that you argue, and there, may, but there are in, you know, in certain ways too. Just like there are certain, you know, anti-Semites who, you know, fit the total definition, but a lot of what's called anti-Semitism is not anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. you know, it goes both ways, you know, from both mm -hmm. sides of the argument. And so the whole thing about our anti-Semitism is just is ridiculous. It's the and. I like to read a lot of these articles and then just switch out, you know, the all the things they say about Islam with, you know, things about Judaism, because you could you could make the same arguments for, you know, argue, pretty much arguing for an Islamic phobic position, even though they wouldn't call it that. You could say, make mm -hmm. the same arguments for uh, an anti-Semitic position, and you could probably mm -hmm. do it better. Yeah, I don't know what's going what it, what it would take or why. I suppose I could think of a few reasons why, but this idea of people people identifying you know, with certain groups in society, it's really, it's, it's, it's new, it's very new and it's kind of, um, certainly to the extent that it's happening uh, today uh, and the way that it's happening today, um, why do people do that, you know? Uh, why do they feel the need to identify themselves, to feel that they're a part of some kind of a group? And of course you can, Yes, give it give enough time and thought to it, you can come up with uh, any number of groups that you can then adhere to, you know, or you can start one yourself and say, you know, this is my group and, you know, get as many people as possible to, to attach themselves to it, you know. It's almost as if, well, I suppose you can't really divorce it from the, because one of the antidotes to it, I suppose, is um, would be people just identifying with um, with their families, for example, and their friends mm -hmm. and their lo very local community. You know, the place where most people spend most of their lives and with the group of people that they spend the most of their lives. Why would they, why, why would, why don't people just stick with identifying with that, you know, that uh, family, for example, and your close friends. Why do people feel the need to identify with like people that they don't even know and have never met before in some social movement that spans, you know, tens or even hundreds of millions of people and think that. Think that that's actually part of that. They're that, that they're actually part of some kind of real group in that sense, you know. Um, and I mean, of course, it's possible that with the the kind of destruction of 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 the family, effectively, in particularly in Western societies, um, it's not surprising, I suppose, that people would then adhere to other groups when they don't have those mm -hmm. traditional kind of family and community um, uh, connections and associations that. That, that they did in the past, you know, <clears throat> I suppose it's not, it's no, it's not a coincidence that those two things are happening at the same time, you know, where where so many people are on their own effectively in in, in major cities and stuff, and they look to something to to attach themselves to to give themselves a a sense of you know community or something like that, you know. But it's in this context, it's ridiculous because it's like I said, these people they don't know each other, they have nothing really in common except this silly some silly manifesto or some silly uh, set of set up ideals <clears throat> that aren't even practicable, practicable uh, or, or applicable or implementable in society, you know. Um, so it's, what would it take for people just to, to wise up and stop doing that, you know? And um, who are these people who do that? Because I'm pretty sure they're not the majority of people, um, but they're a vocal minority anyway. And, and they really seem determined to, you know, to me, Make it into an issue, make this identity politics uh, uh, an issue, you know, and make it a fractious issue in society, you know. Um, 
But I just I just don't understand why any of them actually really do it, you know. Um, but maybe that's the reason they're looking for something to to give themselves an identity. Basically, that's why it's called identity politics, right? Because they they, they don't find it in their local communities or in, they didn't get it in their family of origin, etc. Yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a complex topic. It, it is a complex topic, but I, in in general, I think that's probably pretty close to hitting upon it. Um, I think with the advent of social media and, and computers and instant gratification and the kind mm. of dissolution of, uh, of, you know, um, groups and neighborhoods and, and other yeah. sorts of so, like more traditional or social structures, mm -hmm. they, they're, they're reaching out for something. They, they don't understand why exactly. And it's so urgent. It's so, um, it's so desperate in a way that, uh, and, and the emotions are so intense that it, it comes out in this kind of identity politic uh, affil affiliation uh, that they're that they find themselves drawn to. Uh, and I don't think it's a I, I don't think it's a, a conscious thing uh, in, in large part. I think it's a kind right. of that's the problem, right? Well, I think that I think it might be, you know, semi-conscious to to, you know, a fairly significant degree for the people that that become a part of a movement like this because they want to be the ones on the top basically so you know they look at right. their their own position in in you know in the social hierarchy and they don't like it and so right. so then it's it's very easy to then say you know to then just do the identity politics thing where they say mm. well the reason that I'm in this position is because I'm a part of this group you know of, of all these people that I don't even know and so I'm going to identify with all these people I don't know in order to, you know, effect political change so, that so I can get so I can get on the top, so I can take right. what you've got. And so so someone's told them in most cases that they're victims, right? Yeah. As well. Yeah. And that they should do something about it. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily that they are actual victims in any real sense, apart, you know, the normal kind of problems that people have to confront in life. And that the apparent you can't really get over, you know, you can't create a society where no one has any problems. So everybody's going to have problems. So you're always going to have the potential for someone to form a group and say, I have these problems. We have these problems and we should do something about them. Um, so, yeah, it's easy to convince people that they're victims because it's very attractive, right? To convince for anybody to feel, well, I'm a victim, but it's not because people necessarily like being a victim, but it's because the attention that being a victim gets them and the cause that they get to, uh, their their personal cause effectively that they get to push forward under the under the the title of of victim and like you said Harrison it's ultimately a, a striving for power they want power so these people are kind of in a certain sense me megalomaniacs <laughs> and uh, they're not content to just live their lives and accept the, the the lot they they have and you know work within the means that they have to improve their lot they want to force society to change to fit their own uh, view of of of, the, of their position. So it's it's in every victim there's a there's a very grandiose person, someone who believes they're fully entitled mm -hmm. to lots of things that they're not actually entitled to at all. Right. Yeah, and it it really comes back to the criminal mentality that we've mentioned uh, a few times, you know, on the show in the past month month or two, where there's this yeah there's this sense of self entitlement, and when you read. Um, like inside the criminal mind, for for instance, the description of a lot of these criminals and the personalities that they have, 
they essentially like you know they you, they might be poor you know they've got a bad job they you know they resort to crime and when someone will interview them like like sam now the the author of this book they'll he'll ask them oh so what do you want to do he's like oh well you know i really want to be an entrepreneur and you know have my own business and he talks to them about this and they have no idea what it takes to start a business they have no idea how much work they're going to have to put into it they 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 expect to just be the entrepreneur and make the money without doing any work so basically other people right. do all the work for them and they get all the money and they become like prestigious and and uh high class and get all the perks but they don't but they don't they don't see the work that will have to go into it and they don't want to do the work that will have to go into mm -hmm. it so right. that's, what, and that's that's the same with these yeah exactly that's the same with the kind of social justice warrior types who look at people you know businessmen etc and think well how dare they you know they they, they must have got that by ill got but by some you know manipulative or, or unfair means and it should be taken away from them you know because if if i mean if it's not if there's no injustice involved in it well why am i why am i not in his position why don't i have lots of money as well and they never stop to think that well actually probably because you haven't worked for it mm -hmm. and uh you could have it if you would put the work into it but obviously you want to be you just want it for free you want it for nothing you know and i mean there's nothing wrong with people with with anybody, it's totally natural people to identify with a group or have a, a kind of ideology or, or a philosophy, let's say, even a better better word, have a philosophy on life and stuff, and to find other people who share that similar philosophy and stuff. But it should it has to be informed uh, as much as possible about the nature of human beings, the nature of life on this planet, and the forces that that operate. To, to create great movements back and forth and, and, and that those forces are not really within in anyone's hands, you know, and that they can be quite destructive. They can be led towards uh, destructive ends. Um, I mean, anybody who really looks at, at the history of human life on this planet and, and human societies uh, uh, and saw sees those forces and the way they work um, would just, would automatically not go near any of those broad social movements wouldn't touch them with a barge pole, you know, mm -hmm. because not only are they not reflective of reality of, of human existence, but they, uh, like I said, they very often in, in very destructive places. But apparently there's a lot of new people mm -hmm. on, this, on this planet who, uh, who have no understanding of history and don't care to learn about it and are just here for the, for the shits and giggles and the smashing of windows. Well, you know, when, when we were, when I was listening to all that, I was just thinking that uh, the U.S. In, be in becoming this full-fledged, you know, imperial entity, you know, if you were to drill down, if you were to uh, anthropomorphize, if the, I probably mispronounced that, but if you were to kind of drill down to the U.S. as a, as a single person, um, it also kind of embodies the, the behavior of the criminal mind. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it goes around the world. It bullies other nations. Uh, it wants what it wants now simply uh, because it does. It, it, can, it does things simply because it wants to. And you have to wonder because, I mean, this whole social justice warrior movement is, is um, it's always been around to some degree, but we've never seen anything like this. And it's still a pretty kind of uh, recent development. I mean, you wake up in the morning and, and there it is, full-fledged. So you have to wonder uh, if there is, to some extent, um, a kind of a, 
a reflection that's being held up um, mm -hmm. towards towards the authorities um, who are behaving in this way. There's a there's a kind of a mirror, a societal mirror, uh, mm -hmm. in the form of these social justice warriors that that we're seeing. It's the child of of government, yeah. It it is, but but it's also it's. Um, what was I going to say? It's uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, you talk about social justice, and the reason social justice and the idea of being a social justice warrior, uh, you know, which people could accuse us of being social justice warrior, social justice warriors over the years, you know. But um, the question is, where does the injustice come from? And so, where for, where should your activism against injustice be be directed? Um, and people don't think about that too much, you know, <clears throat> and. Um, it's interesting that, uh, from our perspective, uh, the injustice ultimately comes from the top down. You know, injustice is uh, is is carried out by you know by largely by governments. In this case, you know, the Americas, the American governments have been are, are responsible for a lot of injustice around the world. You know, real injustice, unnecessary suffering. Let's say stuff that doesn't have to happen. We're not talking about wiping out all all suffering or all injustice, whatever on the planet, is always going to be there to one extent, but it's the unnecessary suffering, the stuff that doesn't have to happen, the stuff that's egregious, you know, yeah. that's almost, that's, that's willful, uh, that people should uh, should reel against. But like I said, that usually comes from people in, in, in very uh, powerful positions who have the means to carry out that level of injustice around the world. Uh, but it's interesting that, you know, that has been subverted yes. and the potential for that uh, justice to be directed in the right in the right direction, which is on, for to on high and to particular places and people, <clears throat> has been subverted. And what we see today is that social justice is defined by uh, groups of ordinary people who should be fighting against people at the top. You know, let's say they say goes in power and stuff. They uh, instead they're fighting each other. You have Black Lives Matter fighting against the whiteies, the ordinary people. So how did that happen? I was going to say the same thing. I mean, in, in 2003 and 2005, you had uh, hundreds of or at least tens of thousands of people in New York and Washington, D.C. speaking out against the Bush administration for impending war in Iraq uh, and other things. Uh, where are those people now? Um, it, like you said, Joe, I mean, it, it, that whole uh, mm -hmm. awareness, that whole impetus has been subverted. It's been redirected. Uh, it, it's been, you know, and now you, you probably have many of the same people who would be speaking out or or marching against uh, war, going on Twitter and and saying you, Iran needs to fight for its freedom and we have to support it, uh, when they should be the very ones who are the most aware and active in speaking out against the unnecessary war and destruction that you that you mentioned a moment ago. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, how did how did this happen? What is the mechanism for it? Uh, it's a good question. Hmm. People are stupid. Yeah. Is that the answer? <laughs> In a nutshell. Well, you know, there's, a, there's an odd corollary to, uh, to the guys in ISIS because, you know, as, as much as ISIS is a, you know, creation of Western intelligence agencies, a lot of the, you know, guys on the ground are just, you know, useful idiots. They're dupes, but <clears throat> they, you know, they officially won't go after Israel. You know, the, you know, Islamic State in the, you know, uh, Sinai Peninsula just you know, declared war on Hamas and, right. uh, and won't go after Israel. And th there's, there's a disconnect there. So but... let me get this, yeah, let me get this straight. So ISIS, the great warriors for Islam to, to recreate 
the, an Islamic caliphate in as much of the world as possible and to uphold the true values of, of Islam and the true practices of Islam. This is what they're fight and die for, give their lives for. These people want to have just announced that they're going to war against Hamas, another Muslim group that has been fighting against Israel, which is the country or the group of people, Israelis, who stole one of the holiest places of Islam in the whole world. So, explain that to me again. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, so, does that? But but why? But why would ISIS, a Muslim group, a fanatical Muslim group, mm-hmm. want to fight against the enemies of Israel? Well, it it makes sense when you understand. Is it complicated or something? That ISIS uh, is not a rational. Like we're we're applying all of these rational. Uh, that's what Amer- that's what the American that's what the mainstream media tells me. Mm-hmm. That that's who they are. No, but but that's what I'm saying. At 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 some level, ISIS must hate Israel, Israel right? Uh, who knows? Yeah. Yes. But they must, by definition. <laughs> yeah. Right. So why are they fighting against Israel's enemies? For the same reason that the, all the leftists, you know, anti-war people are now, you know, just obsessed with identity politics and uh, don't care about all the wars going on in the world. And they also support an Iranian regime change. Right. Mm-hmm. Because their minds are all messed up. Because yeah. they're stupid. Because they're stupid. Well, we've got a caller here. He's been on the line for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got Stephen on the line. So I'm going to take this call. Let's call. Stephen. Stephen. Hello. Hey. Hello. Hey, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yeah, I, I enjoy the conversation. And, um, and like somebody said earlier, this is extremely complicated when you start deviling into these, uh, these issues like this. And um, I also agree with the idea, and it, and it really has come home to me lately, is that people are stupid. People and I'm and when I say that I make a point like, hey, I'm not excluding myself from that assessment. I'm fucking stupid, okay. And every time I start thinking I'm smart, um, I'm going to set myself up to just to realize again how stupid I am. And um and when, and it, I think yeah, I think Steve, here's, here's the important point. The important point the is important that point you, is you know you're stupid. Know you're stupid. Exactly. If all these, people, if all these stupid people out there knew they were stupid, they would be less stupid. <laughs> we're hearing a little yeah, echo a, from you. It, Could you turn the, you uh, turn speaker, the down? Uh, speaker down? Please. Please. Uh, I don't have a, a speaker to turn down. Can you no. hear me? No. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, but, but, you know, that point was really brought home during with the ancient Greeks. Uh, some of the philosophers back in that day made the point, too, that um, – you know, we really are just so fucking stupid. And everybody that any anytime you meet somebody that thinks they're smart, you just got to be really careful with them because they're just so stupid to think that they're smart, that they're dangerous. Right. Are now, you saying um, this has been on for 3000 years? years? Yes. It hasn't, you know, hasn't changed. Yeah. The 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 unref- the the unreflected life is not worth living, I think, is what Socrates said. 
and um and he was around a bunch of stupid people in that day <laughs> and they and they right. um if the right. if the history if the story is correct they made him um he commit he committed suicide um rather than to bow down to their stupidity and mm-hmm. um anyway i think he he's one of the historical figures that i have some respect for for just under um the guy really is fascinating from uh from the uh, accounts of him in the republic written by plato but um getting to this uh issue about jewish people in israel um uh there's a lot of games being played um jewish people are 2% of the population yet they are um they have a high percentage of positions in entertainment law doctors and um i can't bash jewish people that's because they're not stupid. They're not stupid. Yeah, well, well, there you go. And um, I, I, I despise anti-Semitism. Whenever I meet somebody who's the Jews, did you? I'm just like, shut the heck up. But, Hang on a minute. Do you, but do you realize, Stephen? Stephen, do you realize that uh, what I just said that Jews are not stupid is actually anti-Semitism? Well, yeah, <laughs> I can understand that. But no, and my larger point is, um, you know, um, if you're two percent of the population. It's easy to see why a lot of Jewish people would be get caught up in um viewing um the majorities as um a potential enemy especially with the history of pogroms and and so forth but having said that there's a lot of people that um Jewish people in the United States that support Israel they're not critical thinkers about it and uh but then having said that there's a lot of people that put their ass on the line that are hated by their own families and communities or looked down upon because they dare to speak up um for the Palestinians and um right. god bless those people those are those are quality people so yep. um this is yep. yeah this is not an easy issue but i despise anti uh, semitism and and people that whine about the jews the jews the jews and um you know maybe um you know if you're a small population maybe you'll put a lot of emphasis on education into getting into positions of power mm-hmm. just so you don't end up slaughtered by the majority you know or maybe so, it's a genetic as well, genetic as well. Yeah, there you go but um that's you know, anti-semitical yeah and getting on to the uh, sjw um where uh, i really it it really grates me um and as a, I'm a white male but when i hear these people you know they go on and on about it's the whites you're privileged this and that it it's just it's so sickening to hear that kind of talk and because there's a lot of people like me that struggle i'm not privileged i don't see where my privilege is at um i bust my ass i bust my ass just to have a a living where i don't have wealth you know i don't even have money to attend to my my the care of my health health insurance for myself i don't have that money and uh i don't have property but then they when they talk about that we whites me i have to pay reparations for because i'm guilty you know that 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 rubs me the wrong way well, yeah, no, you and a lot of other people, I'm sure, and that's why it's so stupid, and that's why it's really a, a, a recipe for social social chaos, you know? It's horrible. The idea of, I mean, I'm all for understanding how people are discriminated against by people with more power, the history of racism. I'm all for delving into that, exploring that. But when you start, your solution is to to 
to uh, say that I am guilty and you're going to tax me higher or whatever. So the descendants of people who were slaves, you know, they might be one half, you know, one quarter, one eighth white. The descendants can have something and you're going to tax me. I see that as a recipe for freaking disaster. And um, I think that the way it works in the social jo- uh, justice movement is there's there are leaders of it, thought leaders, and they make uh, decent salaries, $50,000 and up, maybe maybe less, but they're getting money for spreading their ideas and being the leaders. And they can say all of this stuff and um, they rile people up uh, with simplistic, uh, you know, formulas and so forth. And it, and it really does sow division. And these, what's interesting to me too is that because I'm very much anti-imperialist in my my basic core worldview, that these same people have very little or nothing to say about what's been going on in Syria for uh, six years, what's happened in Ukraine. In other words, they have they they have virtually no critique of U.S. imperialism geopolitically, and um, it really is a tragedy that um, you know what 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 are we we're like. Um, 15 years since the uh, attack on the second attack on Iraq and um, the the quote unquote left or anti-war left is at the weakest it's ever been since the 1960s. Exactly. Right. Exactly. How did that happen? How did that happen? Uh, well, I think what what's happened, they destroyed the unions. They destroyed unions. Um, they control the apparatuses of propaganda and indoctrination, and they become much more sophisticated in using those apparatuses, apparati, and and um, and brainwash, in beating people down, in dumbing people down, and um, we have just so little solidarity among us. There's people like Amy Goodman with Democracy Now, who goes on air five days a week, and they do their little reports about Syria. Um, she did a report. I, I just very rarely tune in. But when she does her little news blurbs in the start of the show, she talked about um, government besieged East Ghouta. So she she framed it like the government of Syria didn't have any kind of legitimate right to try to reclaim East Ghouta from the jihadists. All right. Right. You know, but anyway, I, I just kind of vented a little bit. I just want to wish you guys happy new year. I enjoy your shows all the time and um, it's not going to be easy. Who knows what's going to happen in the future? But um, wow, I just, you know, I really do appreciate voices such as y'all's, um, you know, coming on air weekly and we can have some discussions and deep thinking about things because without mm. that, mm. Without that, we would be in worse shape. So thank Bring you guys. Bring in some sanity. Some sanity. No, problem. Thank, no problem. Thanks for listening. Thank you all. Take care. Bye-bye. Great. Thanks, care, Stephen. Stephen. And, uh, Stephen, next time you call in, maybe try to get some headphones or something, because when you call in, there's an echo. Um, so it makes back and forth, you know, conversation a little mm. difficult. But, um, yeah. yeah, see if next time, if you can maybe <coughs> hook up some headphones to your phone or whatever you're using. Whatever you're using. All so right. Thanks, thank Stephen. you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Stephen. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. That's... Um, it made me think of an interesting point there that I think is true across the whole victim mentality situation, just as I was having some fun there with anti-Semitism. Um, that uh, it's, anti- it's potentially anti-Semitic to say that the Jews are smart. 
right? Mm-hmm. And it's also it would also obviously be anti-Semitic to say that they're stupid. Mm-hmm. And so, do you, you know whenever you know you're dealing with a victim mentality when you're not really allowed to say anything about the person, good or bad. When, when what would be good or positive in any other in, other, in any other scenario is seen as a, as victimization, you know you're dealing with some kind of pathology. You know. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because if a if a, a a goy says that you know the Jews run Hollywood, that's anti-Semitic. If a Jew says that Jews run Hollywood, that's just um, um, self congratulations. Mm. Yeah. Uh, no, it's not anti-Semitic that Jews are smart because it's sarcasm. The Jewish people, by and large, are very intelligent. They have a very high IQ. Um, it's uh, you know obviously there's exceptions uh, and everything, but as a general rule, they're they're, they're very intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but that's potentially anti-Semitic. So yeah, I think you, you can maybe say that they're just average, but then that's almost like it's not very nice to say that either about someone, is it? Yeah, you they're just average. Average. That's mean. And you can't say that they're stupid. So there you go. You just have to you shut up. Yeah, you can't say anything. <laughs> Don't say anything about the, the Jews. Well, but uh, you know, we we mentioned Jordan Peterson. One one thing that he said that uh, you know I kind of agreed with, but on the other hand, he didn't really go or take it you know as far as he could. He was talking about this. Someone asked him you know in a Q and A about you know what his thoughts on. Uh, on the Jews were or something. And he's, he made the point that when he, you know, came to Toronto and, uh, you know, got his teaching position or whatever, you know, he found that the, you know, all the kind of successful, smart people that he wanted to talk to were Jewish. Um, and that, you know, he thought about that and he said, well, just like what you were saying, Joe, that a lot of the, you know, the, that um, in the Jewish community, a lot of people are smarter. Like for whatever reasons mm-hmm. there are, there are, you know, Jewish people, tend to be smarter and they get into prof- professions and, you know, so they can be at the top of their, you know, their game in certain professions. So, you know, there are a lot of Jewish lawyers or in Hollywood or whatever, or in politics. And he says, you know, that just shows, you know, that's not a bad thing. It's not a, you know, conspiratorial. It's just, it just shows that they're, you know, they're good at what they do. Mm. And, uh, but the, the one direction that, he, you know, that, that you have to go in when you acknowledge that is that, when you have a super smart person who's able to do that or a super or a group that has a lot of super smart people that are able to do that, that means you're also going to get, um, um, well, how, how can I put this? If you, if you're super smart and you're, you're very effective, that opens up a whole lot of possibilities for you. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. when there are a whole lot of possibilities, there are also uh, increasing or, or more possibilities for evil. Yes. So whenever you have, you know, a, a person that, that expands their opportunities like that, there are opportunities for evil. So mm. not only will you get a whole bunch of, you know, great Jews that are great at what they do and, you know, the top of their profession and, and uh, you know, they, they do good work and, you know, they're smart and they, you know, they do good mm. research or, you know, they're good doctors, whatever. You're also going to get some people that are at the top of the food chain who are just cutthroat evil. And, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. you know, but you can't well, that's, say that. Uh, but yeah, but but yeah, you're not allowed to say some things that are obvious. Like I mean, there's a book uh, called The Bell Curve by um, by um, a psychologist and uh, political scientist. The psychologist is um, Richard Hernstein, and the political scientist is Charles Murray. Charles Murray, you can listen to some of his stuff on YouTube. 
interviews. He's actually quite interesting. He wrote, wrote a book in 1984 called The Bell Curve. The title of it is The Bell Curve, Intelligence and Class Structure in American Life. And he basically made the, um, you know, went through the statistics and went through the, the, the data basically and, and showed that uh, in terms of IQ, um, Ashkenazi Jews are kind of at the top, you know, in terms of IQ. And below them you then have Asians, um, uh, some some Asians. Obviously, this is these are generalizations, but they're true. Um, and then below that you have uh, kind of Caucasians, white people, and then just below that you'd have uh, Latinos, and then below that you have uh, African Americans. Uh, and this is just a broad sweep in terms of you know. And the the book is all about you know party anyway. It's about um, the argument that uh, you know people's position in in society and class and society and where they are on the economic ladder and all this kind of stuff has, has, has at least partly to do with uh, inherited genetic uh, intelligence, mm-hmm. um, uh, which obviously speaks would speak directly to the whole social justice business going on today, you know, and, and something that the social justice warriors would not like to hear. And in fact, any time this guy Charles Murray has uh, gone to speak. He's written many other books as well. Gone to speak at, at universities, even very recently and stuff. Uh, he gets um, there's protests that shout him down, you know, bullhorns and calling him a racist and a <clears throat> uh, all sorts of other names, you know. But this is that that's just something a, a piece of data. I'm not saying it's the be all and end all of, of of explaining society or human beings and stuff, but it's certainly a factor, you know, the inherent you know, natural genetic traits. Uh, Inherited traits uh, or, or genetic traits in, uh, in in groups of people in different uh, ethnicities, but you're not allowed to talk about that, That's despite true. the fact that it's despite the fact that it's a fact and that it undoubtedly plays a part. You're not, and of course, there's exceptions to the rule across the board. You're usually going to find, you know, stupid Asians and smart uh, uh, black people and stuff. Um, um, you know, they easily found, you know, but it's looking at it from a broad scale, social, broad social level as a way to try and explain, um, uh, to give another explanation other than the social injustice aspect of, of class structure, that it's to do with uh, uh, natural abilities that are divide, defined or divided by by ethnicity. Um, well, Joe, but I, there you go, that just... Go ahead. Well, I, I just wanted to, I'm going to come out here on live air and just say, you know, I, I come from a, uh, a Jewish Ashkenazi background. Uh, and, uh, and I've. Alan, I'll, that's I'll, why you're so much told me. than all of us. <laughs> and, I've been offending you all the way through the show. <laughs> I've met a lot of stupid Jewish people, first of all. <laughs> of course. But, but uh just getting back a little earlier to to Harrison's point, I mean, you know, you, you think of a guy like Norman, Norman Finkelstein, for instance, who who is mm. uh, uh, who has come out um, strongly against the so-called Holocaust industry and has pointed out um, some of the things that we mentioned earlier about the the, the label of anti-Semitism. I mean, you know, you have a lot of um, a lot of uh, genuinely good. I think, and uh, and strong individuals uh, like Finkelstein, who come from a Jewish background, his parents were Holocaust survivors. Uh, he had every reason to um, uh, 
to ascribe to this victim mentality and went in the other direction. Uh, and then by the same token, you know, you have uh, APAC in Washington exercises this incredible amount of uh, power over U.S. foreign policy, you know, pro-Israel uh, and and racist and um, and arguably a pretty smart bunch of people for what they do. So, yeah, I mean, um, it, it's, <laughs> you know, nature or nurture, criminal mind, uh, genetics, um, the, the Ashkenazi Jews seem to go into both directions. Well, I just figured yeah. out another way to put it. It's like uh, j- uh, Jews produce the best of the best. So, mm. like, you know, the best lawyers, the best movie producers, right. the best doctors, and the best criminals. Like, the biggest mobster in the United States, the best mobster was Meyer Lansky. Mm-hmm. He was the top of the food chain. He happened to be mm-hmm. Jewish. Happened to, mm-hmm. you know, to be involved in, you know, arms smuggling to, you know, to the Jewish terror mm-hmm. groups in Israel. Um, yeah. It, you know, it's just the way that it crumbles. And look, <clears> the thing is, intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, and look at Jared Kushner. I mean, the thing is, intelligence isn't, isn't the be-all and end-all of it. I was thinking... <clears throat> Intelligence is broken down as well into t- kind of types. I can't remember the exact terms, but there's types of intelligence uh, that that make a person more suited to uh, certain, you know, certain jobs or certain endeavors. You know, so like yeah, in, in terms of Jews, you'd have uh, a lot of um, like lawyers and uh, and maybe doctors and stuff like that, but you wouldn't have so many really famous Jewish musicians or well, you do have a few of those, but in different areas, you. Know, know that uh, that their intelligence wouldn't apply to to other areas you know for example with Asians you have a lot of their their intelligence is generally speaking focused largely toward engineering you know and, and that kind of detail oriented work you know mm-hmm. but um they wouldn't necessarily be uh, you know intelligence or excel in other in other areas of life and in fact uh, you know intelligence isn't really a hallmark for success let's say it's 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 there but it's not the definitive hallmark for def- for success uh kind of uh, work basically uh, initiative and uh, commitment and uh, perseverance is is much more uh, indicative of, uh, of of the potential for success than than than, than intelligence you know well it's intelligence it's obviously, it's obviously complicated you need a certain amount huh intelligence and conscientiousness right yeah. conscientiousness exactly you know, it's there. It's obviously a factor, but it's complex and complicated and stuff. But uh, you can speak in broad terms about these things. But then, when it comes down to the specific situation, it has to be taken mm-hmm. on its own merits, as is, is is always the way. And that's you know part of the problem with the complexity of life. People would like to be able to make broad, sweeping generalizations about about society and how it should be fixed and how it should be ordered. But then, uh, when you look at the actual application of that at a uh, on a individual level, it's it's much more complicated. You know, and and that's that's the the real crux of the of the problem, I suppose, in in terms of trying to organize society. You know, you can't just have a broad ideology and try and apply it to everybody because you're going to have problems. You have to deal with specifics, and people don't generally don't want lazy people don't want to have to deal with specifics and the complex nature of an individual case uh, that may not fit the fit the rule or whatever. You know, so um, yeah. Well, do we want to? Uh, round out the situation in Iran a little bit more, or do we want to move on to um, anything else with uh, North Korea? Um, I think I think we pretty much said everything we want to say on Iran. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything you want yeah. to add, Joe? Yeah. No, other than this MEK thing, people can take a look at the MEK uh, 
cult that uh, that has been involved, uh, more than likely involved in it. I mean, last the group called um, the People's what's it called People's Mujahideen or Iran MEK uh, or short. They've been around for a long time. It's a, it's a real kind of cult, uh, personality cult kind of thing that's been going for for quite a long time. They were set up in a, in Iraq back in the 80s under Saddam, they were friends with Saddam, you know, anti-Iran, they were anti-Iran all the way through it. They're basically pretenders to the Iranian throne. And at a certain point, they, um, you know, they, they became, they came under the purview of the U.S. as, as a, as a, as a kind of infiltrated, infiltrated, infiltration group, I suppose, for, in Iran. They carried out many kind of attacks, killed a lot of people during the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, they were involved in the killing of Iranian scientists along with Mossad in Iran over the past 10 10 or 15 years. Um, so the real nut job kind of group. And uh, there's, we have an article by, by Neil on, on the website right now um, uh, about them. And there's a, there's a Press TV um, documentary linked at the very bottom, which you can can watch. It's about 50 minutes and it gives you a good insight into who these people really are. They're, they're set up in France, actually, near outside Paris. They have a compound, a headquarters there. And you know, it's it's kind of like Scientology for for Muslims in a certain sense, um, not quite so large and broad, but that that general kind of the general uh, flavor of it is, is like that. Um, and just last year, I mean, they were over the past. Um, they're set up after they were kicked out of um, Iraq by the Iraqis uh, just last year. Well, they had a base there, and they were kicked out, and they moved to Albania, to the capital, to Tirana. Uh, apart from being in outside Paris, they have a a kind of a, a camp or a, a setup in, in Albania. And just uh, last August, a bunch of high-level senior U.S. senators met with, with the leader of it, um, a woman called Mir- Miriam uh, Rajavi. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so they were talking to these people just six months ago, basically. Um, so it's there's some credit, there's some reason to believe the Iranian allegation that these, this group uh, that has a history of of militant terrorist uh, activities has is involved or has been involved in some way. Well, it has been involved in Iran for quite a long time, but that it's been involved more recently in these uh, in these protests that thankfully went nowhere. Mm-hmm. And they have very strong ties to uh, U.S. Uh, neocons and support right. from uh, U.S. neocons in 2012. Yeah, a lot of lobbying going on. Yeah, and a lot of money. Uh, mm-hmm. She took them off the, the terrorist list that I think the State Department had them on. They've been right. trained by uh, by U.S. military in, in certain uh, in certain places in the U.S. So um, uh, they've been used by Mossad, as you said, Joe, to uh, assassinate Iranian nuclear scientists. Uh, they are effectively the you know the, the kind of uh, the fourth golem um, group inside of Iran that uh, Western interests are using to, uh, to bolster the narrative. So, yeah, like you said, Neil's article is terrific and, and covers mm-hmm. quite a bit of who these people are and, and what they, uh, who they're supported by. It's the kind of mm-hmm. uh, pro-democracy groups that the U.S. supports all over the world. Uh, you know, like the, like the Gulen organization in yeah. Turkey and mm-hmm. al-Nusra Front in Syria. Um, Azov yeah. Battalion in Ukraine. Yeah. It's a great stand-up, guys. Pro-democracy, pro freedom. Yeah. On the North Korea thing, yeah, you mentioned at the beginning of the show how it's like uh, you know the two biggest, the global 
leaders in trolling are Donald <laughs> Trump and Kim Jong Kim Jong Un. Mm-hmm. Um, they they don't seem to be really serious about it. No one's ever no one has been serious about this. It's all been bluff and bluster, just to kind of like you know, American needs a good good enemy, a good you know, a good uh, rogue rogue nation to shake a stick at now and again and rabble rouse and saber rattle and stuff. Um, and to obviously to project its power over to Asia, you know, for because of the North Korea threat, blah blah blah. It's all nonsense. Nobody should believe a word of it, really. I mean, now you have um, Kim talking about the North Korean leader talking about the well, the North Koreans talking about they're going to send a delegation down to the to the Winter Olympics in, in South Korea, which is a bit of a surprise for everybody because I thought they were, you know, I thought they didn't like skiing anyway. Um, and also, Trump just said recently that uh, that he would possibly meet with Kim, yes, um, Kim Jong Un, uh, you know, under certain conditions or whatever. Which is probably that you know he brings I don't know if there's a McDonald's or something <laughs> in Pyongyang or something. They build the first McDonald's in Pyongyang might be the first requirement, or the art of the deal. But he can bring that he can bring Jared Kushner or I don't know. Um, a Trump Tower. <laughs> you can open Trump Tower, or you know, Milani is allowed to open a clothes store in Pyongyang. Those are the kind of conditions, probably. Um, but yeah, I mean, they go from you know, fire and hell, and what is what do you call hell and fire, fire hell and fury, fury, fire and fury, fire and fury, blah blah. You know, nuclear war. You know, we're on the brink, and then it's like, yeah, maybe meet with a guy actually, maybe chat about stuff. You know, just go from that almost from one day to the next, and it's uh, how can you not think that it's all one big charade? You know. Well, in the when Trump was asked about it, um, I think it was just yesterday, maybe the day before, he said uh, he was asked about. <clears throat> um, I can't remember what the question was. It was some, you know, just something related to to the developments in North Korea, and he said, "Well, you know, well actually, I've been getting a lot of a lot of people have been thanking me, and even the, you know." Um, the leader of South Korea had said that, or do you have it with you, Ilan? Yeah, I might. You keep paraphrasing <laughs> and I'll see if it's... He said, they've been, yeah, they've been thanking me. And, and the leader of South Korea even said that, you know, that my, uh, you know, my tough rhetoric and, you know, tough stance have uh, have been essential to, to, to go in like this. I've impressed them. Right. And, but so, but the way he phrased it was kind of like, he kind of admitted that it was all, all rhetoric. And then he kind of, slightly backtrack and said oh but really you know i'm i'm, I'm still totally serious and uh yeah and, uh, we've got the biggest weapons and so, so he, he kind of like he reveals the you know the man behind the curtain and then you know just puts the curtain back down again and says oh right oh, yeah. really, I'm, I'm totally serious oh he, he yeah, said this is uh, deadly serious sure i believe in talking uh adding that kim knows that i'm not messing around not yeah. even a little bit not even a little bit <laughs> but if something can come out of these talks that would be a great thing for all of humanity that would be a great yeah. thing for the world. When you have to, when you have to qualify your tough talk by saying, "And I'm not messing around, even a little bit," <laughs> uh, you shouldn't really have to say that. No, but then you get um, the headline saying Trump's not messing around. Mm. He also says yeah. uh, you have to have a certain attitude, and you have to be prepared to do certain things. And I'm totally prepared to do that. <laughs> yeah, me too, Donald. I'm totally prepared to do that, whatever that thing is. So you need attitude. Let's do it. That seems to be the the underlying lesson here from El oh, Trumpo. So funny. The art of the the art of the deal. Mm-hmm. It's, such, it's such a 
such a farce, the whole thing, you know. We have to actually take it seriously and read headlines and go, hmm, let me analyze that. Oh, no, I'm not bothered. It's nonsense. <sighs> well, yeah, I think that's really all all the news on North Korea. Maybe just one little one little thing on Russiagate. Uh, you know, Joe, you gave the, the, the broad outlines of, you know, where things have been going the past couple of weeks. But one of the interesting developments is that Paul Manafort has, uh, you know, filed a lawsuit um, against, right. I, I, I can't remember who exactly it's against, if it's against the Department of Justice or the FBI or or just Mueller, hey. Mueller's team. Yeah, um, the whole thing. But uh, his his point, which seems to be valid, um, so we'll see where it goes, is that he's he's basically suing them for um, going beyond the, the remit of their investigation in their charges mm-hmm. against him, which is total, I mean, it makes total sense on the surface of it, so like I said, we'll just have to see, because... Um, all the crimes that they they've charged him with are you know have nothing to do whatsoever with the Trump campaign. The Trump go back or as far as like 2005, 2006, and right. there's nothing to do you know f- with the time period he was even involved in the Russia or it, with the presidential campaign. So they're going after uh, like and the the law is apparently pretty clear that when there's a special uh, prosecutor, they you know they have a very limited you know, um, yeah. scope of what Within they the scope of it. Right. right. And that wasn't part of the, you know, their initial scope. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, just on the surface of it, it looks like he's got a kind of a slam dunk case that this is, you know, you know, they, they shouldn't have charged him with any of this. And that, and that just, you know, again, exposes the entire thing is that all of the, um, you know, the, the, there's no big, um, well, there's nothing there. Burger. There's no real charges. There's no burger. Um, you know, everything that they've got has been either with Manafort, like the biggest charges were against Manafort for all these, you know, uh, alleged crimes that he committed and nothing. And apparently the FBI already had looked at all of these things and investigated him at, you know, in the time. At the time, right. At the time. And they closed the investigation. And so all they, right. did, all they did for this new report was they just reopened it and then charged him with all the things they had previously cleared him of. And mm-hmm. all, all of the other charges, all of the other things they found have been these minor process crimes like um, like Flynn and uh, Papadopoulos, you know, um, telling uh, telling lies to the FBI when none of them mm-hmm. were, were material to the actual, you know, scope of the investigation. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think it, it's so it's totally a tofu burger. It's a tofu burger. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Anyways. maybe on that note, we'll uh, we'll leave it. And, uh, yeah, we just want to thank everybody for listening on this first show of 2018. Uh, There'll be many more. Yeah. Take care. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Stephen, for listening. And tune in to the Health and Wellness Show next Friday as well. Have a good evening. Bye-bye.